Well, it is good to be with you. I've been friends with your pastor for about six and a half years, since 2017, and so to finally see some of your faces here is, uh, is a true blessing for me. And uh, we've been praying for you uh, through various transitions over the years, and trust that the Lord has uh, many wonderful things in store for you uh, in the future. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark. With God's help today, we're going to consider the last miracle recorded in the Gospel of Mark. It's the last one, and yet it's one of the most well-known miracles in the Gospel of Mark. It's about blind Bartimaeus, a poor beggar that was blind, begging to have his eyes open that he might see Christ, show us Christ, right? That he wanted to see Messiah. And of course, that's a picture and a type of him receiving salvation as he is granted his eyesight, as with most of the uh, miracles. The irony is, is that blind Bartimaeus sees more clearly than even the disciples who were following Christ for three years. Their dullness is shown again and again. Mark records this miracle with vivid, dramatic detail. And of course, most of the information that Mark is, is recording comes from the Apostle Peter. And so Peter is giving this eyewitness account of what happened that fateful day in Jericho, just before the triumphal entry. So let's look at verse 46, Mark 10, 46 to 52 is our text today. And I'll set the broader context in just a moment after I read and pray. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called to the blind man, saying, Take courage, stand up, for he is calling you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and he came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as a, a needy people, actually as beggars. We, we are so weak in and of ourselves even to live this Christian life and to seek to bring glory to you. But we thank you for the Holy Spirit, for those of us that have been born again, having that Holy Spirit inside to give us strength, to give us courage, to give us faith. And so, Lord, we pray that even now, that each one might benefit from your word and even the lessons that we'll be looking at in this final miracle in the Gospel of Mark. Have your way in our hearts, O oh God. Help us to see something of Christ. Help us to see something of his incredible compassion 
and something of his great love for his people, and that we also might be uh, just shocked by the free grace of the gospel, that it's not of works, but it's of grace alone, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the gospel of Mark is a very fast-paced gospel. The word immediately occurs. I, don't, I didn't relook, but it's 40-some times, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately. It's a fast-paced gospel. And really, the first eight chapters are showing who Jesus is. And then, the, from chapter 8, the middle of 8 and on, is really demonstrating his authority. And really, the theme has been one of discipleship. The turning point is back in 827. You don't have to turn. You can just listen if you like. Um, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he questioned his disciples saying who do men say that I am okay that's the turning point of course you know Peter answers you are the Christ well then he goes into this lesson a dense lesson at the end of chapter 8 on discipleship and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And it goes on. So really from this point at the end of chapter 8 through chapter 10 is a theme of discipleship, following Christ. Okay. Now also in chapters 8, 9 and 10, Jesus gives three very clear predictions of his suffering. For example, in 8.33, says, but turning aside, sorry, that's not it, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days will rise again. That's 8.31. The same thing is repeated in 931. The same thing actually repeats in chapter 10 and verse 33. Saying, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. This is 1033. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later he will rise again. Now, what is James and John thinking of? What are the other disciples thinking of? Okay, that's, that's pretty heavy language. And this is the third time they've heard it in a short amount of time. Every single time the disciples show their dullness of heart. Because James and John, if you look at it here, verse 35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to the teacher. This is right after Jesus just gave this clear prediction Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in glory. So what is James and John consumed about? Selfish interest, right? It shows their dullness. Their request was proud and self-centered. But the key to, do, to true greatness, as Jesus would say, is not how many people you can get to serve you, but how many people you can serve. Look at verse 45. Jesus says it clearly. That's the verse immediately preceding our text. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the title of the message is Poor Beggars Made Spiritually Wealthy. Now, this takes place in Jericho. Jericho is uh, a town that a lot's happened historically in Jericho. So we'll, we'll just establish that and then jump into our text. It's one of the most famous cities in the Bible. After the, the conquest, Jericho was allotted to the tribe of Benjamin. That's Joshua 18.21. It was in Jericho that Rahab the harlot exercised her faith and actually hid the spies, right? And then hung the scarlet thread so that they would pass over and her family would be spared. It was in Jericho that God's people for six days marched around, right? And, and, and then they blew trumpets. And what happened? The walls came tumbling down. It was on the road to Jericho in the Gospels that we have is where the good Samaritan loved his neighbor and stopped to help a man who had been beaten and robbed and left for dead. When the priests were walking on the other side and bypassing this, the good Samaritan, it was on, yes, this road. Where was Jericho in relation to Jerusalem? Well, Jericho is um, about 17 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Jericho is about five miles west of the Jordan, so it's all in somewhat proximity. Now, this miracle occurs in other, in the other Gospels, for example, Luke, but the name is not given. It's only Mark's Gospel that gives the name. And his name was Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, which probably indicates that he was somewhat well-known. This man, in many ways, is a picture of how any sinner may be saved. He's got nothing to offer to Christ but his cries for mercy. We're going to look at this under four points. They're all questions. Um, I want you to ask yourself these questions. If there's nothing else that you write down or whatever, just take note of these things. Do you know that all men are blind by nature to spiritual things? I would assume that's a yes for everybody. But then I want you to ask yourself these questions. Do you seek the Lord with unwavering persistence? Thirdly, do you lay aside every hindrance when coming to Christ? And four. Do you follow Christ as a faithful disciple in your discipleship? So first of all, do you know that all men are blind by nature to spiritual things? It's an introductory truth. Bartimaeus is a, a blind beggar here. That fact may have kept him silent, you know, as the crowds are coming, as they're heading to the Passover up to Jerusalem. That fact may have kept him quiet, but he's not quiet because he's heard something of of Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus the Messiah. As Passover is approaching, many pilgrims would be traveling up to Jerusalem. Jericho is at or just below sea level. Jerusalem's 3,500 foot elevation. So it was going up to Jerusalem. Pilgrims from all over the place were going to Jerusalem for the Passover. This is when those Psalms of Ascent would be sung. You know, Psalms 120, and on, in my trouble I cried to the Lord, or perhaps more familiar, Psalm 121, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains, from where does my help come? 
My help comes from the Lord. These are the things that God's people would be singing as they're proceeding up to Jerusalem. Now notice their text says that he was begging. We have a lot of beggars around San Diego, right? On street corners, you see people holding signs and so forth and so on. And and sadly, many of those people are people that could get work, could take care of themselves. We'll leave that for another discussion. But, But in biblical times, there was no welfare state. There was no food stamps. There was no uh, disability checks being cut by the government. If you had no family, you were at the mercy of those around you to even get your next meal. And so blind beggars would line the road that would be traveled, uh, especially heavily traveled roads, because there would be more of a chance of getting some type of alms from people. Now, remember... This isn't a nice paved concrete sidewalk, right? It's dusty, it's dirty, the sanitary habits, um, the glare of the sun, and so eye diseases would be spread around, and that's why many um, either had impaired sight or were blind. You think of pink eye. You know, your child comes home with pink eye and it's all spreading around the school or something like that. It's highly contagious, and some, even him, became blind. Obviously, he was able to see before, so something had happened. He was certainly materially poor, but at this point, he's still spiritually poor as well. Secondly, under this head, we are all also like Bartimaeus. Brothers and sisters, Bartimaeus was physically blind, but there's another kind of blindness that's far worse that the Bible teaches, and that's a spiritual blindness. When your heart is dull and you don't see things spiritually. That was a great physician's diagnosis of the church of Laodicea. Because you say, I am rich, I am wealthy, I have need of nothing. You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. To those who don't see their need of a savior, they are blinded by their sin. Those are men most of all to be pitied. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians, even even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Or as Paul exhorts the Ephesians in that application section in chapter 4, he says, And this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walked, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. So we too are like Bartimaeus. We're even like King David. David says, I was conceived in sin in my mother's womb. If we ever would be saved, it is God's infinite grace and mercy towards us. Paul says in Titus, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but according to his great mercy. So we're all spiritually blind, Apart from supernatural grace, secondly, do you seek the Lord with unwavering persistence? Look at verse 47. 
And when he heard it was Jesus, the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You see, what Bartimaeus lacks in eyesight, he gains or he makes up for with insight. He hears that Jesus, the Nazarene, is passing by, the one that has committed all these miracles, and he cries out. As soon as he heard that he was passing by, he began to cry out. The word in the Greek is krazo. It means to make a vehement outcry, to scream or even to shriek. It's the same word that's used at the demoniac in chapter 5 of Mark. And so this isn't just, hey, Jesus, you got a minute? He's crying out loudly. And how we know that is the very next verse, the reaction of all those that were around. Look at verse 48. And many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, you know, this is right before Passover. Upwards of a million people would be in Jerusalem. There was probably, it was a large crowd, let's just say. I think we can agree on that. I don't think it was just a small little group of people. So people are talking, it's already noise. Like, I don't think it's bone quiet, but his voice raised very loudly. But their opposition of telling him to be quiet, they discouraged him. The ESV says they rebuked him. The NET, New English Translation, they scolded him. The NAS here, they sternly told him. It's all strong words. They're discouraging him from calling out. But he keeps crying out. Their rebuke in him only fans the flame of his persistence that Jesus would hear his voice and his cries for mercy. What is he saying here? In all the hustle and bustle, the dust, he raises up his voice above the crowd. First of all, Jesus, son of David. Well, in the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, says the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. We know the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel chapter 7, that Christ would come. And Jeremiah's prophecy, after rebuking the false shepherds, it says in 23.5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely, and do justice and righteousness in the land. So what is Bartimaeus saying? Jesus, son of David, an acknowledgement that he's the son of David, the same son of uh, Abraham. He's the promised Messiah. And then secondly, what does he say? Have mercy on me. An oft-repeated phrase throughout the Psalms, be gracious to me, have mercy on me. It's all over the place. Heal me, O Lord. Psalm 41, but you, O Lord, are gracious to me, and you raise me up. And, and, and so, too, we need to realize our great need for mercy. Woe to anyone here that, that, that leaves this building and thinks, well, God must be pleased with me because I went to church today. Don't think like that. Not at all. We need to understand we have need of God's mercy, his sustaining grace throughout our entire lives. The Puritan Thomas Brooks says, as there is no mercy too great for God to give, so there is no mercy too little for us to crave. 
The Apostle Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1 was one that he was a, he says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Those are really strong, that's strong language. The violent aggressor means he, 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 he would fight, he was violent, and then he says, yet I was shown mercy. Though Bartimaeus was from cursed Jericho, Jesus did not look on him with disgust like the Pharisees tended to do. Like even back in chapter 2, when the Pharisees were looking down their long noses at the miracle he had just committed, Jesus said this to them, It is not those who are healthy that need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. St. Augustine says, God leads us to an eternal life, not by our merits, but according to his mercy. And then verse 49, though Jesus is determined to go to Jerusalem, he stops to show mercy. Look at it in 49. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up, for he is calling you. Those are remarkable words. Remember Luke 9 tells us that at that turning point in the last segment of his ministry that he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He was determined to go to the cross. He was determined to fulfill the Father's will by laying down his life for his sheep. <clears throat> and he's on mission and he's very close. The triumphal entry and Passion Week is, is almost here. And what does he do? He stops remarkable it's like the sun stopping in the sky he stops those that rebuke were rebuking Bartimaeus are suddenly silenced Jesus stopped he heard his cry Jesus has time for beggars and Jesus is concerned for our desperate plight as fallen men and then he comes to this man to relieve his anxiety. Remember, he said his mission in, from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. He says, call him here. Now, how far were they apart? Well, we could speculate. We don't know for sure. But I think Jesus would say, come here, if he was that close. But I picture this, that the man's cries was from some distance away that Jesus had to say, call him here, right? And it's kind of like when you're at a Padre game and and you hear one guy that's yelling so loud, his voice is so loud from like five sections over, but it's overpowering the noise in your own section. We have a long faith, faithful season ticket holder right here with Carlos. But um, that's the kind of thing. Like I think his voice was loud. And it, it overpowered the other voices. And Jesus saw how desperate this man and how persistent he was to seek the Lord, while he may 
be found. The psalmist tells us, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will rescue you, and you will honor me. Well, suddenly the crowd now, instead of telling him to shut up, essentially, says, take courage. Take courage. That that word means a firm, a resolute, in the face of adverse circumstances, be enheartened and be courageous. So we've seen first, we're all spiritually blind. Um, We've seen secondly, we should seek the Lord with persistence. Do you seek the Lord? Thirdly, do you lay aside every hindrance in coming to Christ? In verse 50, you see the beggar springing into action, right? He says, take courage. The the people say, take courage. He springs into action. And, And look at verse 50. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. That, to me, shows that he's laying aside every hindrance to come to him. He's being obedient. What are some of the hindrances that keep you from Jesus? Like over this past week, was it the love of pleasure? Was it binging something on Netflix? Is it your career? You work 12 hours a day. You don't have time for Bible studies, daily Bible reading, maybe even church at times. Is it an rela- inappropriate relationship that's keeping you from Christ? The pursuit of pleasure and sexual immorality, or perhaps even for some that look at things on the internet that they should not look at, namely pornography. Is it laziness and sloth? That's the new thing that people want to embrace these days. That's just to name a few. Not Bartimaeus. The first thing he does when he hears, take courage for he is calling you as he throws aside his cloak. What does that mean? Well, poor beggars would probably have an outer garment that would be laid there, as you might see at Balboa Park, where people would throw coins, right, or money. And so perhaps he had already had some money, but he doesn't care about that. He throws it all aside. Perhaps coins are flying into the air. He quit his begging, and he was resolute in coming. Second, he jumped. These are all active verbs. He jumped up. ESV says he sprang up to his feet to leap into the air. Hebrews 12.1, a familiar text. Therefore, <clears throat> since we have such a great cloud of witnesses <clears throat> surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run the race with endurance before us. <clears throat> And then thirdly, he comes to Jesus. Now, he's still blind. And remember, I'm, you could say I'm speculating, but I think there was some distance, at least from that door to here, you know, and he can't see. And he's trying to get to Jesus. And, and it, picture the scene here. I mean, perhaps he's running through the clouds, or through the crowds and, and bumping into others that are traveling on the road. <clears throat> But one thing is sure, blind people have more sensitive hearing, don't they? And didn't Jesus say, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And so he's coming to Jesus. He, he lays aside every encumbrance. He displays earnestness. And so should we in coming to our Savior. 
He's a merciful and a faithful high priest that prays for us. Reminds me of earlier in Mark in chapter 5, uh, the woman with the hemorrhage. Uh, there's also three verbs that, that kind of communicate something there. It says, a woman who had a hemorrhage of 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and has not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and she touched his cloak. Must be careful to not be easily diverted from, from anything in coming to Christ and to lay aside laziness and sloth and to take courage. Well, verse 51, Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus believed that Messiah could heal him. Jesus answering him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabboni, or teacher, I want to regain my sight. It's the same thing that just earlier, James and John, after that third prediction of his death, he asked them, what do you want me to do for you? And that's when they said, I want to sit on the right and the left, and so forth and so on. But he asked the same thing here. Now, it's not that Jesus didn't know what this man wanted, but he loves to hear the cries of his people. He loves to hear us come to him in prayer. As Paul states, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Notice what he doesn't ask for. He doesn't ask for wealth. Doesn't ask for power, doesn't ask for success, doesn't ask for a wife or a house. He wanted to see Messiah. He wanted to regain his sight, not just to regain his sight so that life would be easier and perhaps he could care for himself, but he wanted to see Messiah. Perhaps he had heard about some of the messianic promises in the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah 35. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. No doubt, towards the end of Christ's ministry, being this close to Jerusalem, everyone had heard that Messiah, or a man claiming to be Messiah, has come on the scene. And so he probably heard of the miracles that had taken place. And he hungered that he might see him. How we ought to relish the mercy of God and to understand its vastness, that he is so good. Listen to how Matthew Henry puts it. All the compassions of all the tender fathers in the world compared with the tender mercy of our God would be like a candle to the sun shining or a drop to the ocean. The mercy of God is so vast. Well, lastly, uh, verse 52, do you follow Jesus as a faithful disciple? Look at the text. He says, Jesus says, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road, thus bringing this section, the three chapters on discipleship to a close. You have a model disciple here. It's immediate physical healing. It's immediate spiritual healing. It's sozo in the original. When it says healed, that's a word that's used for salvation. Of course, these miracles often pointed to the greater spiritual need. Had the physical need, but the spiritual need 
is much more vast. Luke's account says that he glorified God. And obviously following, following Christ, he did. Perhaps he had a prayer something like this and from Valley of Vision. Thy cause, not my own, engages my heart, and I appeal to thee with the greatest freedom to set up thy kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify thyself, and I shall rejoice, for to bring honor to thy name is my sole desire. Lord, use me as thou wilt. Do with me as thou wilt. But, oh, promote thy cause and thy kingdom come. Let thy blessed entrance be advanced in this world. It is thy cause and kingdom I long for, not my own. So he was a model disciple. Of course, later in 11.9, if you look there, he would be among the voices that would raise up their voices. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, because he's a follower of Christ. The Apostle Paul had this great resolve, one of my favorite verses, in Philippians 1.21, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. A very familiar passage. What does it mean? What does it mean to live for Christ? Well, there's a few areas, certainly to live by faith. For Paul to live was faith in Christ. I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard that, what I have entrusted to him until that day. To live for Christ means to love as he loves. It springs naturally from faith in Christ. To live for Christ means to have fellowship and communion with Christ. We read of Enoch and Noah that they walked with God. Jesus said to his disciples, abide with me and I in you. And that was the secret of Paul's spiritual power. He abided in Christ. Or as Paul states in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But also, it means that in the Christian life, living for Christ doesn't mean that everything's going to go your way, that there's going to be suffering, there's going to be difficulty, there's going to be things to lament over, and lament is a good thing. You see it in the Psalms, because our life is filled with tragedy and hardships and difficulties, isn't it? I mean, each one of you have a story. I don't know any of you. Each one of you have a story what you've been through the last 10 years, what you've been through the last six months, and what you've been through even this month of July means being willing to suffer for Christ, to bear his shame, to open your mouth and to share the glories of the Lord and to be willing to be mocked. Listen to Kent Hughes. We must understand that for me to live is Christ is not a triumphant sentimentality of a trouble-free life, but a joyous embrace of the burdens of the cross of Christ. In effect, altogether, this meant that Christ was the conscience center of everything so that Paul had a Christ-centered ministry, a Christ-powered ministry, and a Christ-exalting ministry. To be willing to suffer, but also 
What about serving the Lord? The dedication to Christ. That's the basics of discipleship, is following him and being used of him, having a single-minded devotion to him. Well, that's the account of blind Bartimaeus, a, a, a poor beggar made spiritually wealthy and become a model disciple of following the Lord. I hope you've been able to answer those questions as we went through. Just a couple of concluding thoughts. May we realize that all of us are beggars. It comes from being lost in our sin. Every time you pray, you are acknowledging that you are a beggar because you can't accomplish what you're asking. We need to be reminded of ourselves of how weak we are. Let nothing hinder you from coming to Christ. We owe a huge sin debt that we cannot pay. But as the hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. We have nothing to offer to God but what blind Bartimaeus had, a cry for mercy. God is sovereign in salvation. He often selects the poorest, the vilest, the most depraved, as if utterly to explode the idea of human merit and to magnify the free grace of God towards the, the, the most wretched sinner. What a precious truth that stains the pride of the human heart. It humbles us to the dust. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind. But now I see, of course, you know, John Newton and his testimony, a slave trader, wasn't converted until his late 30s, perhaps even early 40s. Um, he saw himself as a wretch, and God used him mightily for the next four or five decades. Charles Spurgeon says this, a mercy, it is God's Benjamin, no, not a $100 bill, <laughs> Benjamin, the last one born, uh, of the, the 12, it is God's Benjamin, the last born, but the best beloved of his attributes. It ascribes all praise and honor and glory, might, and majesty, and dominion to the triune God. And then we are called to be salt and light in this world, right? There's a lost and dying world out there. We're called to be salt and light as we follow Christ. As we follow him in our discipleship, we are called to evangelize, lower E, evangelism. R.C. Sproul said this, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, I would implore you to come to Christ. Don't harden your heart. Today is the day of opportunity. Don't ignore this opportunity for mercy. You've been hearing about mercy. Why would you run from such a gracious Savior? Bartimaeus ran to Jesus. If you're outside of Christ, the tendency is going to be to want to run away from Jesus. It's like a roach. When you flip a light on and the light comes, the roaches run for the darkness. That's the way the unconverted are. But if you'll confess your sin, hate your sin, and repent from your sin, God will save you. 
He is a gracious Savior. Come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just like he told Bartimaeus, call him to me. Come to me. While we were yet sinners, Christ laid down his life for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you for this simple account in the gospel. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for even the faith and the earnestness and the persistence demonstrated by a blind beggar. Help us to realize we are beggars at best, O God, and that we would come hungering and thirsting after you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.